If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn them to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture for us this morning, and then we will dig into it and then try and get out of here. So John chapter 17. Uh, and today we're going to look at verses 20 through 26, the end of the chapter. And again, I just kind of want to remind you, this is in, the, in your, your um, scripture, probably in the, uh, the heading of this portion of scripture of, of John chapter 17 is probably referred to as the high priestly prayer. And although it, I'm not taking anything away from that, but I, what I believe is a better title for this would be the Lord's Prayer. Because this is a literal prayer of Jesus to God the Father. Um, this is not to say that this was the longest prayer that Jesus had to his father, but this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible between Jesus to God. And so it's not like when we look at Matthew, when we, when we mention the word the Lord's Prayer, we automatically go back to the passage of Matthew where Jesus is teaching the disciples, this is how you pray. Um, this isn't what Jesus wasn't teaching the disciples how to pray here. This was the disciples witnessing, watching, and looking at Jesus praying. And so um, when we saw that, and so um, Three weeks ago, I guess it was, we looked at the first uh, six verses of John chapter 17. Those first six verses, the beginning of that prayer is when Jesus is praying for himself. He's asking um, God to help him complete the task, to finish the work, to finish the job. Um, and, 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 you know, that teaches us a lot of good lessons, I, I think. Um, again, I, I encourage us in our own life to realize that God's got a plan for us. Everyone in this room, um, God's got a specific plan for us. Um, and he's given us the opportunity to fulfill that plan. Um, and it can be challenging for us, can't it? Like in a, in, in a moment of honesty, with all the distractions in life, and not that the distractions in life are all bad, but it could be our spouse, it could be our children, it could be our jobs. Those things are, are good, they're necessary, but sometimes they can become things that pull us away from what God's called us to do if we're not careful. Um, even church can be one of those things at times. And so we just talked about... Um, us relying on God, looking to God, figuring out what God's called us to do, identify what that plan in our life that God's called us to do, and then pursue that plan. So when we breathe our last breath here on earth and we stand before him, he can look at us and say, good job, you finished the task. Um, and so we, that first part, those first six verses we looked at was a Jesus' prayer for himself. Uh, the, the, the middle portion of John 17, so verses um, 7 or 8, I guess it was, through verse 19, Jesus is praying for the disciples, the ones that he spent the last three and a half years wandering around with. And he's praying for those disciples. And there was really two main parts of that, of that prayer that really stood out, at least to me. First, he prayed for unity. He prayed that those disciples um, would remain unified. Like their world was going to turn upside down. I mean, the one that they had followed, the one they had given up everything for. Jesus was, was soon to leave. And so Jesus knew this. And so his prayer for them was that they stayed unified, that they stayed together, they stayed close, that they relied on each other. And then after that, um, the second part of that prayer um, we see in verse 15 is this, uh, uh, this ability for them to persevere against the evil one, against Satan. Um, I, and really verse 15, uh, if you haven't underlined that in your Bibles, I really would encourage you. Um, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's an idea to us, and we can carry this to us today. Like, there's a reason why the, after the moment we say, 
the sinner's prayer, the moment we accept Jesus Christ, that he doesn't take us home right then and there. There's a job for us to do. And, and, and so he's just saying, you know, God, protect these guys. Keep them safe from the evil one, from Satan. And, um, and then today what we're going to look at, verses 20 through 26, we're going to see where Jesus actually prays for you and me. So let's go ahead and read this passage. We're going to pray. We're going to dig into it. So John 17, starting in verse 20, says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as I have loved, loved them even as, as you loved me. Verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you are given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Verse 26 says, And I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you be with us as we try and look into your word. I pray that um, as we take a little glimpse into this conclusion of a prayer, between you and your Father. A prayer that that you, some 2,000 years ago, prayed with us in mind. Lord, I pray that you help us to grab a few things from this scripture that we can apply to our lives. I pray that you um, reveal things to us, open up our eyes to understand it. Lord, I pray that you give me uh, your words. I pray that you open up um, my mind, my, my mouth, and I pray that everything that we say and do brings honor and glory to you, and everything that we say and do is what you meant here. Uh, Lord, we ask for life change today. I pray that if there's someone here that don't know you as your Savior, that today's the day, that something goes off, that, that, that you call them, and they finally give in, and they finally listen, and they accept the call, Lord. Uh, we look forward to seeing you work. It's in your son's beautiful name we pray. Amen. So this morning, when we, did, when we get here, this is what I find so amazing. Because when you look at verse 18, or, or chapter 18, the very beginning there, it says, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. That garden's the Garden of Gethsemane. So as soon as he finishes this prayer, they cross over into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in that garden that Judas shows up, and Jesus is arrested, and the trials begin. Okay, so to me, what I find so amazing to me is, the conclusion of this prayer in the last moments of Jesus' life here on earth, the thought that's going through his mind is us. Is us. So that we see that and we, we know that because in, in verse um, 20 it says, I do not ask for these only, these only referring to the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. This is what's cool. Jesus knew that when, the, when Judas showed up, the disciples would scatter. 
He knew that they would go in hiding. He knew their world would turn upside down. He knew it would be utter chaos. He knew their minds would be full of doubts, of confusion. He knew all of that. But he still knew that they would come back and accomplish the task that he had trained them and prepared them for. I, I heard this old fable. It's not true. I don't suspect. I don't know, I guess. But as Jesus was ascending into heaven, he crossed Gabriel. And Gabriel said, okay, Jesus, the plan worked. Okay, you, you came, you died on the cross, uh, you came back to life, and you're going back to heaven. What's, gonna, what's the plan now? How do we spread what you did? And, he, and Jesus turned to Gabriel and said, I've spent three and a half years with these 11 men. I've equipped them and I've prepared them, and they will turn the world upside down. And Gabriel turned to him and said, those are the same 11 men who ran. One of those guys denied you three times. If they don't do it, what's the backup plan? And Jesus turned to Gabriel and said, there's no backup plan. It's them. That's a fable. But Jesus knew that those disciples would turn the world upside down. He knew it. He didn't guess it. He knew it. And so when we talk here, that, that phrase there, um, find it here, those who will believe in me through their word. You guys understand that we today, our faith, we are direct descendants in the family of Christ as a result of the disciples. They took the word. They took that time with Jesus, everything they saw, everything they witnessed, the teachings that they heard Jesus teach them, the teaching that he had taught the disciples directly. They went, they talked, they told. And they changed the world. You guys, we can trace back our spiritual heritage all the way back to these guys. And so as Jesus is praying there, he's praying for us today. Every generation that would believe in Christ, the generations to come, that will believe in Christ. Jesus is praying for right outside the garden. And so as we know, as we see Jesus praying, it kind of begs the question, what is he going to pray? What are the things he's going to ask God to do for us? The first thing that we see there is unity. Verse 21 says that they may all be one. Underline that, circle that word one, highlight it, whatever it is in your Bible. That they may be one. See, we see this, this phrase, one, used uh, several, three times in, in, in these couple verses. That they may be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you. That they may also be in us. Why? Why, why is unity so important? So that the world may believe that you sent me. You go down to um, verse, 23, or verse 22, says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one. Again, I would circle, underline one. Even as we are one. Verse 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Three times Jesus mentions unity. I wonder why, why is unity so important? Why do you think that would be the thing that would be on the front of Jesus' mind as he's praying? I think there's two reasons why um, unity is important. 
First, I think there's, there's pleasure in, in unity. Psalms 133, David, um, the psalmist there, wrote, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Okay, so how many parents do we have here? Okay, several parents, right? Every once in a while, we get this fleeting moment, maybe a second or two, where we can sit and we can see our children playing together and enjoying it. It doesn't happen very often, right? But there's that, there's that glimpse, there's that moment where you can sit back and it's like, wow, they actually like each other. I don't know if it happens in the Kelly household. They're all looking at each other as I mentioned this. No, right? but, but, there's, but parents, like every once in a while, there's that time where you look back and maybe you're in the other room and you look in and, and, and they're actually enjoying each other. And as a parent, when you see that, how do you feel beyond just amazed? There's like, oh, wow. They actually like each other. There's that, that moment of pleasure. You know, God's the same way. I mean, God's looking down on us. He's our Father. We use that term faith family a lot. He's the Father. We're the children. And when He can look down and He can see that moment, those times when, when we're all together, when we're playing and sharing toys with each other, where He's like, wow, it does my heart well. So I think there's, there's pleasure when you see unity, there's also power in unity. Proverbs um, 30, verse 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet all of them march and rank. So here's the deal. Like a grasshopper, cricket, like they kind of hang by themselves. They, they hop in your backyard, you just brush them away and they're gone. But locusts, they like travel together in mass. Like there's no king, there's no alpha male, there's, no, no, there's none of this. They travel together. And when they come into a community, when they come into a, an area, they destroy it all. They eat, they, they, they eat the crops because of this power of unity, togetherness. They do it all together. Locust by himself does nothing, but the whole crew comes in, they destroy it all. There's power in unity. So I want us to look at a few things here when it comes to this idea of unity. Why um, unity is so important. Or let me back up here. That's Jesus' plan. Look, we're going to get back to the reason of, of why it's important. But, but Jesus' plan is unity. He wants the family of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ to be unified, those who believe. So if that's his plan, what do you suppose the plan of Satan is? to divide it, to tear down, to disrupt it. So what are, the, what are some ways that the devil's done that? And, and I think when we, we can look at this, and I'm not going to ask you to necessarily look them all up. If you want to write some of these notes down, uh, you want to write some of these cross-references in. But some ways in which the devil tries to divide and conquer, split us up, get us off rail. Now we can go back to the very beginning. We can go back to Genesis and the things that he used then, he uses today. And we're going to highlight a few of them. Uh, one of the first ones that we see there is competition. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Most of these stories we're going to reference are very familiar. It says, um, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering 
of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. You have this sibling rivalry, this competition between brothers. Abel gets upset. I mean, Cain gets upset because because God didn't glow on his offering like he did Abel's. And this rivalry, this competition between the two brothers, it's, it's interesting because today in the age in which we live, um, competition is one of those things that we often cherish, we look for, and we look to. And in certain regards, it's okay. I, I mean, you take competition out of sports, there's really no reason to play the sport, right? But sometimes we carry the competition away from the sport and into life. We even carry it into church. The problem when it comes to these other things is all of a sudden we begin to create this area of division between a brother and a sister in Christ. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm good, you're bad. I'm better, you're worse. And now I have to work hard to prove that. It can be very destructive. It's interesting, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about the body of Christ. And Jesus specifically talks about how there's different body parts, just like it goes with the body of Christ. We all have different talents and abilities, right? We've got some people who are arms, we've got some people who are legs, we've got some people who are fingers, some are toes, and everything in between. See, God never intended for everything to be one single thing with one single view. There's differences. Earlier in our journey through John, John chapter 5, we see Jesus' view out, I think, on a, a, a way of viewing Jesus' idea of competition. You guys remember when Jesus walked into the pool of Bethesda? There was that crippled man. And, and this, there's this idea, this, this pool that the angel would come down there, would st- the angel would stir this pool, and the first one into the pool, after it was stirred, would be healed. And so there's this competition amongst all these people who were, who were, who were sick or were crippled or whatever else. They would try and get to that pool, and the first one in. So there's this huge competition. Jesus walks into the pool of Bethesda, and what does he do? He finds the guy furthest away from the pool and heals him. Tells this guy to get up, arise, take your bed, and walk. John chapter 5, go back and remember it, read it. I think we have to be careful when it comes to competition in our own lives. How about exposure? This is kind of an interesting one. Exposure. Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 23 says that Noah began to be a man of the soil. This is after the ark, okay? This is after the flood. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
So they have this story, right? Noah, one of these huge foundations of our faith, one of the, the main characters of the book of Genesis, Noah and the ark. You guys remember that story shortly thereafter? He goes out and he's done being an ark builder. So he takes up working in vineyards. The Bible doesn't tell us whether there was this intent on Noah's part to become drunk or not. You guys got to remember, like, the whole um, environment changed and shifted after the, the ark, after the, the flood. Right, so so there, there's the potential, I don't know this for sure, there's a the potential that, that you have this, this grape juice that had um, been out there for months or whatever and had begun to ferment. He didn't fully understand it, he's drinking it. Or he may have known it and just fully went and did it. It makes no difference how it got there, but the reality is he ended up drunk and naked. I mean, there's a lesson right there about drunkenness. <laughs> okay, but, but the point of the story is this. Noah's drunk and naked, and his son Ham comes in there and sees his father this way. And rather than take care of his father, he goes back there and he finds his two brothers and said, hey, Pops is in there. He's drunk and naked. And there's this whole conversation going on. He's exposing the sin of his father. Um, we can kind of call that gossip today. Even in the church realm, um, one of the things I think we have to be careful of is this. We, we get some information and um, we find somebody and out of the depths of our heart, we feel the need that we need to pray for that person. So we tell our friend, come here, we, I need to tell you this. We need to pray for so-and-so because, and then we have to fill in all the blanks. Um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, and when I say church, this isn't a statement against Redemption Hill Church. This is a statement as of church as a whole. I wonder how much, if we were to compare gossip within the church versus gossip outside of a church, I wonder which team would win. I mean, I, I've, I've spent my whole life in church. And listen, folks, I'm not saying any judgment because, hey, I've probably been in the thick of it before. But we, like, we, we often mask our gossip by trying to play this spiritual card. Like at the end, I think we should pray for them makes us feel more spiritual, more right. When at the heart of it is we're just getting together to gossip. Part of the problem with this whole idea of gossip is it creates a false um, fellowship. Because that one that we're sitting there gossiping with, you could probably be rest assured that at some point that person's going to be with somebody else gossiping about you. <laughs> it's this kind of vicious circle that we go through. And all the while, what does it do? What does it do to the relationships with each other? What does it do to the relationships within the church, the, the faith family of the church? It begins to, to create this division. Because sooner or later, you, you find out that so-and-so talked about you, and, and, and now your guard is against them. And so rather than sitting next to them, now you're on the opposite sides of the church. A little glance back and forth every once in a while. Some people, maybe, maybe even causes people to leave the church because of it. See, there's this, this, this little bit of division, this little gossip began to 
causes drifting. Some of us might say, um, well, yeah, but I, I didn't say anything. I just listened. There's a difference. Well, um, Proverbs 17.4 says, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. It's kind of like guilt by association. You may not say anything, but if you're the one that's always there in the middle of that circle listening, you're giving credence to it. Later on in Proverbs, it, it tells us um, if there's no wood, the fire can't burn. What's interesting, though, here is we see this, this difference uh, of view here. Um, Proverbs 17.9 says, He that covers a transgression seeks love. And we see this played out in this story because Ham's the one going around talking to his brothers, trying to stir this thing up about his dad. And Seth and Japheth, they hear about it. And what do they do? They go and they find this covering. They put it over their shoulders and they back up. And they cover their father so no one can see him. So no one can see him in this state. They do this out of, out of love. I mean, they carefully and completely do this. Now listen, folks. Don't misread what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's not accountability in life. I'm not saying that there's, there's right. and, there, and there, I'm not saying that, that, we, that we shouldn't cover up everyone's sin. I'm not saying that at all. Sin needs to be dealt with. But this isn't like the old Salem wit trials where that we bring everybody up in front of everybody and deal with it all publicly. If, if we truly love that person, our heart is to help the individual, right? If we're going to draw something out, if we're going to get to the point where we expose something, it's for the benefit of that person, not for the benefit of everybody else. Legalism. Um, Genesis chapter 21, verse 14. Um, you have this story there about, about Abraham. You guys remember Abraham had two sons, right? Hagar that he had with his, his maid. You guys remember there's this promise. Abraham said, you're going to have a baby. And they waited, they waited, they waited. It didn't happen. Finally, Sarah goes, listen, Abraham, um, just have a baby with my servant and you'll have a child. So he does that bad mistake. Nothing good comes out of that. And then ultimately God blesses them. Sarah has a baby, Isaac. So you have Ishmael and Isaac. And when we go into uh, Galatians chapter 4, Paul paints this picture of what these two children, these two babies of Abraham signified. Ishmael signified the law, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Right? And then you have Isaac who stood for the new covenant of grace. And in this story in, in uh, Genesis chapter 21, as Ishmael's leaving, he's mocking Isaac. One of the things we have to be careful about is, is this idea of legalism. The law will mock grace. See, legalism gets to this, this thing. We see it played out all throughout Jesus' ministry with the Pharisees. They were all about these laws and rules, weren't they? Why? It wasn't because they wanted to grow closer to Jesus or closer to God, was it? No, they wanted to earn this ribbon because they could keep all these laws. It made them self-righteous. 
This idea of legalism, though, these laws, and all of a sudden, if you don't meet every law, then you're wrong. You're bad. You're off. And so, so we see this idea of legalism, favoritism. Genesis 25, 27 through 28 is this story of, of, about Jacob. Or Isaac has two boys, right? You guys remember he has two twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And what's crazy in this story, two twins, there's two children. Daddy likes one, mama likes the other. And they live their entire lives with this tension of favoritism that mom and dad place and the kids and the boys play it out. In our own lives, the devil will use favoritism to create division, to cause a divide within our church, within a family, whatever. Jealousy. How about Genesis 37 about Joseph? Remember, Joseph gets the coat of many colors. We mentioned Joseph a couple times now. His brothers get jealous, so what do they do? They sell him. Jealousy is one of those things that we can harbor internally. Like we can sit, even in church, and, and, and something really good has happened to another family. And in your heart, you, your mind starts wandering, thinking, man, must be nice. And they got a new car, new house, fancy new clothes. Or man, they got a baby. I've been, we've been praying for a baby for years. They get it. Why them, not me? That's jealousy. One of the things I think we have to be careful of is when you look at the life of Joseph, the next time jealousy creeps into your heart, I want you to think about Joseph. Because here's the deal. We know the story of Joseph, right? He gets that coat of many colors as a little kid, young, young man. Was he the favorite one his whole life? No. Those next several years, there's going to be pits, there's going to be prison. There's going to be a lot more downs than there are ups. See, we fast forward later on. The brothers come back into Egypt. They see a totally different person, right? Something they don't even recognize. A guy that's high in the hog. I mean, he's got the top position. He's got the power. He's got all the material things. He's got the family, everything. They're in a bad spot, and they're just craving what he has. And they don't know all the garbage he went through earlier in life. Just like us in our lives. We can sit back and we become jealous of people for the things that they have. And we don't know the pitfalls that they went through before they got what they, what they have now. And we don't know the pitfalls they'll go through later on in life. We become jealous over things that, quite frankly, those people might be wrestling with that are burdens that they don't even want anymore. But the devil can use all these things. The devil can use competition. The devil can use exposure. Jealousy, these things that we've talked, he uses all these things to create a division. And God wants unity. We take this back to the church today. See, when we talk about unity, we need to be careful because unity doesn't mean that we need to all be the same. Like military, I, I didn't join the military. I didn't, you can look at me and pretty much realize that. Some of you served in the military. 
And you could speak on this more than I could, but, but you go into the military, um, you go off to boot camp. When you show up, I mean, you all look differently, but when boot camp's over, you all look the same, don't you? Same haircut, the same clothes, you walk the same way, you talk the same way, you eat the same way, you all do the same thing because the military is driving you to be the same on the same mission, the same task, to look, to feel everything the same, right? That's not the way Jesus intended the church to be. There's all sorts of flavors to church, isn't there? Uh, we can have what some call high church with like liturgy, like high church is the choir robes and, and then maybe the minister comes out there in a robe and the choir sings or chants and there's incense burning. High church. You can have low church, which is, is, gets, doesn't want anything to do with the, the liturgy and all they want is the prophecy, the tongues, the healings, all that kind of stuff. And then you can have some that are maybe more not to the left, that, that, that they don't want the high church, they don't want the low church, they want the church to be in there involved in social causes. That they want the church to feed the hungry, to, to help the homeless. And then you can have maybe the more fundamentalist type group that's, that's more to the right. That, that they're going to say, we're going we're to build into our people the word of God. We're going to make them focus on doctrine. Here's the deal. You take all those flavors, the depths, the height, the depths, the left and the right. And what does it make? A cross. Because that's the only way we find unity is at the cross. The only way that we as a faith family, the only way that we as believers can find unity is at a cross. That's it. We as a church right now, as it stands, we're non-denominational. I, I, we've mentioned this before. I, I make no bones about it. I come from a very deep Baptist background. I'm not anti-denominationalism. Okay? I'm, not, I, I'm not against denominations at all. There, I think there's a need for it. But I do have a problem with this. When a denomination begins to build these walls around themselves to where they believe that they're the only ones that are right. And if you don't fall into that room, if you don't fall into those walls, then you're wrong, we're right, we're good with God, you're not. One of the things I've enjoyed the most about this being non-denominational is, is, is we just focus on Jesus. We just talk about him. Now, there may be a day that we, we partner up with a denomination. That may be good, but, but I hope and pray that Redemption Hill never becomes about the denomination, that we always remain about Jesus Christ. Always, always, always. It's always about Jesus, that we're always focusing on the cross so we can enjoy the unity. There are differences, but it's, how, how sad is it today to see all these churches that are fighting Earlier we talked about the, the pleasure of unity. It's apparent how we can, we can look and when we, when we see those moments that our children are playing with each other, we feel that pleasure. I wonder when Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit looked down on us. You look at the churches and they see all the differences. 
Because quite frankly, I don't think Jesus really cares too much about denominations. They see all these differences, all these different flavors. But rather than these communities coming together to find the things that they can agree upon, the cross, the essentials, they just want to pick over little things that are somewhat irrelevant and fight. What's so amazing about this passage here, when Jesus is talking about the importance of unity, it comes down to this. This is why he wants them to be unified, so that the world may believe. So that the world may believe. That puts a lot of weight on our shoulders, folks. The world's looking on the outside looking in. They're looking into our tent, if you will. And if all they do is see all these churches, all these Christians fighting with each other over stuff that doesn't make sense to them, what do you think is going to cause them to want to get into that tent? Now again, folks, I'm not saying that we embrace everything. I'm not a universalist. There are essentials that we have to agree on. Like if we can't agree on Jesus Christ, if we can't believe that Jesus is God's only son, if we can't believe that he came through a virgin birth, that he came, he died on the cross for our sins, and the only way to him, if we can't claim John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, if we can't believe together that he came, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again, if we can't agree on those things, then we can't be unified. But if we can agree on the essentials, we need to try it and get away from the non-essentials. Because people are looking and watching. And it's important. It's, a, it's critical for us. Because in Jesus' prayer, three times here, back when he was talking about the disciples, he prayed for the same thing, for unity, that they, that they love each other, that, that they're unified, just like you, me, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, he, he, he compares, he wants the same relationship the same unity that the Trinity has. And I'm pretty confident the Trinity's pretty tight. And that's what he wanted for the believers here. Yeah, they can be different. They're going to look different, smell different, taste different. They can maintain some of that. But they need to come together at the cross. Jesus had a few other things that he prayed for. Um, Verse 24, we'll get through these quickly. Verse 24, so the first thing that we see that Jesus prayed for was unity in verses 21 through 23. Verse uh, 24 says, uh, Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that they may be, that they may be given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Jesus prayed for our eternity. And that we would spend eternity with him. I don't know about you, but how awesome is that to think about? Jesus Christ, about to die on the cross for our sins. Praise for yeah, unity amongst people. But then he says, God, I, I want these people to be with me forever. Now, I, I want you to think of your best friend, whoever that may be. For some of you, it may be your spouse. Probably not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Think of your best friend. 
there's a reason why you guys are probably really, really good friends. I mean, you, you like whatever it is you like. You like drinking Starbucks together, shopping, talking, fishing, whatever it is. You get along well. Okay, think about if you had to be with that person 24-7 for eternity. Like, after a little while, it would, you'd probably want some space, wouldn't you? Not Jesus. And Jesus right there, he wants that direct connection for eternity with you and me and everyone who believes in him. How amazing is that? That's why I love Romans 5, 8, that and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like when we were wretched, when we were dogs, when we were scum of the earth, when we were just bad, evil people with no desire to do good, he loved us to, enough to die on a cross for us. At that moment, as he's praying for us, he knows the people who will accept him. He knows all the baggage that comes with him. And yet he says, God, I want them with me forever. Eternity with me in heaven forever. How amazing is that? How awesome is that? I mean, that, that's God of the universe. To me, that's mind-blowing that he wants to be with me forever. And then finally, we see um, in verses 25 through 26, Jesus says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And he prayed for a mutual love. A mutual love. To me, I find it so amazing and fascinating that Jesus, at the end of his life here on earth, knowing what was about to occur in just a matter of a few moments, knowing the beating that he'd be under, knowing the mocking that would exist, knowing the torture of being on a cross, I mean, knowing that people would spit at him, knowing the guys that had followed him for three and a half years, people that he had poured his life into, would run and scatter and hide, Knowing all of that, that as he concluded this prayer to his Father, he ends it praying for us today. He prayed for us that we would be unified. We would find unity with each other, with all believers. that not only would we find unity, that we would spend eternity with him forever and ever and ever, and that we would understand this mutual love. To me, it's so amazing and so special. I hope you find hope in that. I hope you, as you think about this, I don't know what's going on in your, in your life right now. 
I mean, things might be rosy. You might be, everything's peachy keen. That's awesome. For some, no, I, I know for some. Like, this is like depths of the valley. This is like low points of life. And there's a lot of people in between. Some of you who are on high points right now, everything's great. You guys know that you've, you've gone through life enough to know that, that you're only going to be on top of that mountain for so long. Sooner or later, you're going to be back down that valley. And those of you who are going through those depths, you, you hope for the opportunity to climb back up that hill, that mountain. I don't know where you're at, but I do know this. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, some 2,000 years ago, prayed for you. Prayed for you. And it wasn't just a one-time prayer. You go read the book of Hebrews. Several times we see that Jesus Christ today is standing at the right hand of Christ, speaking on our behalf. It wasn't a one-time prayer. He continues to do that for us today. That he loves us and willingly gave himself for us. And so as difficult as life might be, take hope knowing your Savior loved you, prayed for you. For us as a church, like we're in the early stages, we're the baby steps. Unity for us is not difficult. But there'll be a day where it will be. There'll be a day when something creeps into Redemption Hill that's going to try and create some type of division. I'm no rocket scientist, guys. I mean, I, we've all been in part of churches long enough that we see and we know that happens. It's going to happen. If we, if we with reckless abandon, pursue Christ, the devil's going to try and put something in our way to cause division. How will we respond then? In our own little circles of friendships. For those that God puts us in place with, that, that maybe we don't see eye to eye on everything but we agree on the important things. I have a great hope for our church. Quite honestly, I have a a great hope for our church being involved with other churches. I've spoken with two pastors here, one here in Tallahassee, one in Bainbridge, about coming and preaching at Redemption Hill. Both different. Both love Jesus. Both I trust. But I, I believe that there's a need that we need to get beyond just our own walls, behind our own little comfort zone. We become unified with other believers so the world can see us, learn from us, and they can see the love of Christ in us. So I don't know where you're at today, but I hope this morning, this, this passage, this portion of prayer that Jesus prayed, encourages you, uplifts you. Let's pray.